listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here's your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there. Welcome to another edition of the Monday Christian Podcast. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and that would help us out a lot. So thank you. On the podcast this week is my friend Gord Martin. Gord is the founder of Vision Ministries Canada, and he works with around 200 churches. Uh, a lot of them are church plants. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring Gord on is because over the last little while, Gord is in the process of completing a new book called Doing It Afraid. And for over 50 years, Pastor Gord has worked not only in Canada, but in countries like Colombia and numerous others uh, to share the gospel. And he has just like a wealth of experience of doing ministry in places where it's difficult. And so I thought, man, let's bring him on and just learn from his wisdom. And so the topic of this conversation, I guess, is doing it afraid. And how do you do that? And so let's go ahead and jump right into my conversation with Gord Martin from Vision Ministries Canada. If there were one word that I would use to um, represent Gord, I think it would be the word grace. Uh, Gord just oozes grace every time you interact with him and talk to him. And uh, as you're going to find out, uh, Gord has been, and I didn't even ask you this before you came on, but you've been involved in missions work, whether it's in Canada or overseas, for how many years now? How, how many years is that? Well, Heather and I have been married for 51 years, and we started pretty well right away when we got married. Yeah. So there you go. For 50 plus years. That's what I put in the Facebook <laughs> title, but I wanted to make sure I got it right. So 51 plus years then. Um, and uh, just has so many unique experiences. And one of the things I, I love about Pastor Gord so much is is that um, you're, you're not in your 20s anymore, but you are still active in traveling around the world. Um, and, and you're one of the most curious individuals I know. You just, you love to learn about things. And so, man, thanks so much for just taking some time out of your day to come on this podcast and interact with those in our audience. I'm very glad to be with you, Ezra. Well, I'm just going to jump right into it. For those that don't know, you're based out of Waterloo, Ontario. Some some who are watching, including friends and family members of mine um, from Canada, would be very familiar with Waterloo. Uh, I've got some relatives right around that area. Um, Your spiritual journey, how did you first come to faith in Christ? So I'm from a large family. There were 10 children in my family, and my mom and dad were Old Order Mennonites. So some people will be accustomed to Amish, but in this part of Ontario, we call them Old Order Mennonites. They have the horses and carriages. Mm -hmm. And my mom and dad uh, were born again radically when they were in their mid-20s. And I'm the eighth of 10. So whenever people ask me, so how many children should we have as a couple? I say, well, at least eight. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a that's like a dog or a cat, yeah, like a litter litter of eight. <laughs> <laughs> so there were ten in my family. My mom and dad uh, left the old order Mennonite church. They realized that 
while there were very good living people, hardworking people, when it came to an understanding of salvation and what happens when you die, it was pretty much of a mystery. Mm. So there were, my dad had two older brothers who were killed tragically. And so there were a lot of questions in his mind and in the minds of the family members about what happens. And so my dad's younger brother was the first to be born again. Uh, there was a visiting Pentecostal preacher who visited a little log church. And it was in that log church where my uncle became a believer. And he introduced the gospel to my mom and dad. And uh, so there were a whole cluster of young married people who all came to know Christ in a very strong way uh, at that time. And so, well, wait, can them, I just like that little log church, that was, I think you put a picture of that in the book that we're going to mention in a second <laughs> yes, that you're yes. in the process of writing. It couldn't have been more than what, 60, 80 feet in length? <laughs> it oh, it was small. smaller than that. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was small. I, I remember <laughs> the log building, which is no longer there, but I yeah. remember it. Yeah. And I don't think it was longer than, bigger than maybe 40 by 20 feet. Yeah. Uh, maybe even less than 40 feet. And so uh, when they were baptized, about 15 of them, about a thousand people showed up spontaneously to witness this baptism. They'd never seen anything like it before. It created a huge stir. And so my mom and dad were very real Christ followers. And so what I remember is how pervasive this was in our family because we all grew up on a farm. But every morning we would read the Bible. We read a chapter. All of us kids would read one verse by turn, and then we would all get down on our knees and dad would pray. So that was every morning. I had no idea how difficult that was till I had my own children many years <laughs> later. <laughs> and I only had three. And so, but my mom and dad were very real and, uh, and my dad was a, a great mentor to me. And I had an excellent relationship with my dad. I've learned so much from him. That's, that's pretty cool. I love this line. So you're in the process of writing a book, and forgive me if I have the title wrong, but it's called Doing It Afraid. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I love that title because it's a title that not many people in ministry sometimes want to admit that, uh, and you you have done, oh, we'll get into that, but you've done so many interesting things where the opera, <laughs> you've had opportunities to be fearful, put it that way. Um, yes. I found this line really funny. You wrote, as a teenager, I sometimes wished my parents had been better hypocrites. It would have given me a better excuse uh, to rebel. So <laughs> what were you like with a te as a teenager? How did you meet your wife? How did that all come about? So I went to high school early. Uh, I started grade one when I was only five, and then I skipped grade eight. Uh, not because of my brilliance, really. I just got along really poorly with my teacher, and she was eager to see me make progress somewhere else. <laughs> uh, so I was only 12 when I went into grade nine. I was pretty immature. And I was, I think, desperate to fit in and to belong. And uh, I remember one of the early experiences in grade nine. Now, 
when other kids are 14 and you're 12, it's a big difference at that age. Yeah. And um, so the teacher was filling out a form of some kind and we all had to say what denomination we were. Oh, no, I thought, what am I going to say? All these kids were able to say, I'm Lutheran, I'm Catholic, I'm United. And, and you know, I attended this little church called the Hawksville Bible Chapel. And, you know, it didn't have like a name that I, other people would recognize. And I, so when I said I'm from the Hawksville Bible Chapel, or maybe it was even called the Hawksville Gospel Hall in those days, it just seemed to me like the whole group was turning around and looking at me. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and I just wished I could have been Catholic or anything else that day. Was that before it was cool to be non-denominational? Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and you know, it's never been as cool to be non-denominational in Canada as in the U.S. Yeah. So here, now, being non-denominational is a lot better nowadays, but... Um, in those days, it was just like, what is that all about? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I went to high school. I tried so hard to fit in. I learned to swear really well. And I remember even being rebuked by somebody who I think was not a Christian for my language. And I felt rebuked, I'll tell you. So during the week, I would go to school and behave like, a non-Christian and come home on the weekend and went to church with my parents because it wasn't really an option. Um, <laughs> and uh, But it made me torn inside. Uh, all the way along, I thought, how am I going to put up with this? How am I going to live like this? And uh, the last two years of high school, I went to a Bible camp, which was a really great time. But the preaching would get to me. And uh, finally, by the end of the week, I would make this commitment to uh, follow Christ. And But it, my commitment only lasted about half a day. When I got back to high school, it was all the same. Mm. And I went through all of high school like that. And it wasn't until I had my first job after high school. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to live like this the rest of my life, torn? one person on Sunday, another person during the week. I just sometimes wished I'd never heard of it. Mm. And um, and there was a man who came to our church to hold special services, and he was very kind to me. And uh, I remembered that when I was maybe nine or ten. And when I was in high school, or later on, he came he came in after high school, actually. He came and had services in Waterloo, where we live now. And I knew I wanted to talk to him. I've got this problem. And uh, I don't know how long he spent with me. It seemed like hours, but maybe it was 30 minutes. I don't mm -hmm. know. Uh, he wanted me to commit my life completely to following Christ. So no more trying to please these people during the week and other people on the weekend and God once in a while, he wanted me to be commit myself completely to Christ. And I, like I knew what that meant because I saw it in my parents. That's what it looked like. And so it was a big decision to me. And I remember that night I was kind of like a bump on a log. Uh, 
you know, I wasn't saying much. He was doing all the talking. He wanted me to pray. And finally I prayed. I still wasn't sure if I'm doing it for him or for God or for me. <laughs> but I know that that night, after I left, I drove home. And I was just singing at the top of my voice, all by myself. And it was a huge turnaround in my life. So I got baptized a very short short time later. I was the only one baptized that day, baptized in a river. And um, and here I am wanting to fit in all along. Now I'm standing out in the middle of a river. And some people from my high school went, crossed over the bridge on horseback that day while I was standing in the middle of the river getting baptized I felt like a very conspicuous person. <laughs> but um, but that was a huge turning point for me. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned, I'm not quite sure the time frame of this, but in your book you mentioned that you went through a season of struggling with a lot of doubts and questions and, and saying, okay, is my faith really real? Um, like, does God even exist? And you, you went through a lot of questions, and, and you mentioned where— I think you were in a position where you were bringing in some speakers to be able to speak at, whether it was youth camps or different events for the youth. Um, and you would, I think one, in one you share, you even asked, you, you wrote a question, and I think an anonymous question, uh, you know, do, um, do you ever have doubts or something like that? And the speaker just dismissed it, right, and didn't even really deal with the question. Um, so talk us through that journey. How did you go, like, you went through that season of doubt. What was that like, and how did you come out of that? So I was about 18, 17 or 18, when I made this commitment to Christ. I started to teach Sunday school. I began to be involved in the youth group, which I had avoided all during high school. But now, uh, surprise, surprise, they elected me to become the president of the youth group. And uh, I moved away from my mom and dad, lived with some other young guys, single guys uh, in a close, just right on the edge of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. And one of them was, went to university, and he was studying philosophy. I was in my apprenticeship as a tool and die maker at the time. And uh, so we would uh, debate. You know, he would be the professor, and I would be the Christian, and we argued, and and, uh, just for the fun of it. But... Gradually, I began to wonder, how do I really know for sure? Hmm. How do I know if there's a God? I, like I, In answering him, I couldn't really prove it. And um, so I entered this sort of quiet phase where I was still teaching Sunday school and president of the youth group. But inside, I didn't know. I wasn't sure. If there was, if he was really there or not, and so this happened that <laughs> uh, there was uh, this preacher from Michigan who came and spoke at our church every night of the week, and he told us right away on the Monday night <clears throat> that there's going to be a question box, and if anybody has a question about anything, just put it in the question box, and on Friday night he will answer those questions. So I thought. This is my chance. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so I wrote my question. But I didn't want to let on that there would be like a real doubter in the congregation or anything. So so I wrote my question this way. I said, 
do you, meaning the preacher, do you ever doubt the existence of God? And um, so I really disguised it well. (laughs) (laughs) He put everything on him. Exactly. And uh, on Friday night came, and I was waiting. And he was answering various questions, but finally he pulled out my question. Do you ever doubt the existence of God? He said, I don't know if this is from a Christian or a non-Christian, and he just laid it aside. He never even commented on it. I was so frustrated. You ever wonder why he did that? I I wondered that as I I read that in your book. Um, You ever wonder why he did that or why sometimes uh, maybe pastors, teachers would just kind of dismiss questions like that? Is it because they maybe have, like I've talked to some, they've never really gone through a season of doubt, um, and they're they're you know genuine on that where they've never really gone through a season where they've doubted God's existence. Um, like, do you think it's phoniness or what do you think that is? You know what? I've never been very good at guessing, Ezra. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. No. I just don't know. But I remember how disappointed I was. And uh, so I carried on. I, I just kind of stayed by myself. You know, I did all the public things, and I go home in my room, and I was just looking out the window. Yeah. And um, and then I thought, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to go to uh, there was a Bible camp where I had counseled before at boys camp, and I thought I'm going to go back, and um, maybe there will be a miracle or something that will happen there. And uh, and this will reassure me. So I went. I was accepted. Um, here I was, <laughs> looking good on the outside, but not sure on the inside. And um, the first week came and went, and nothing happened that I could qualify as a miracle. And mm. now we're into Monday and Tuesday, and oh, no. What am I going to do? And so... The director of that boys' camp that year was somebody that I'd never met before. And uh, I thought, you know, I've never seen him before. I might never see him again. I think I'm going to ask him. And I told him. His name was Reg. And I said, this is my problem. I've got these doubts. And he said to me, he said, Gord, you know, I've been a Christian now for 10 years. And I've been in full-time children's ministry for five years. And he said, sometimes I still have doubts. I have no idea what else he said. It was such a relief to me. Hmm. Sometimes I wished that something more profound had happened. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But just to for him to be honest with me, and it was just like having an abscess in your tooth, and suddenly it's drained. Hmm. And uh, hmm. and I was, I, th- I thought I think I'm normal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now, I didn't realize there are like a million books written on these subjects, and right. and I got to read quite a few of them later on. But um, but that was a really a difficult time for me, hmm. and. Um, 
Now, of course, I've wrestled with all kinds of things since then, and uh, even more recently with the death of my son. That's raised another whole flock of questions in my mind. But maybe we can come back to that Yeah, later. yeah. Walk us through, so you have those delts, but you come out of that season, and um, you. where was the first place that you went um, uh, for an extended mission stay? So there was a man from Chicago by the name of Kevin Dyer who had started an organization which was called Literature Crusades at that time. It's now called International Teams. So he was speaking in churches all over North America, and I heard him speak, and he was inspiring. And uh, he was talking about how big cities all around the world are full of young people, that 50% of them are under 17 years of age, and you know, and I was older than that by that time. And, um, and so he was challenging people to go for a summer uh, or two weeks to another country. And so I thought, well, why not? And so I applied to go for two months to Colombia, to Medellin, Colombia, and uh, which became famous for the drug cartels later on. But uh, which is so funny because literally, like a uh, half hour before this call, we had someone. We just had puppies, and so we were selling puppies. And they uh, walked in our door, and they had just moved to our area from Colombia. And so it's kind of <laughs> ironic. It's like, oh, well, well that's pretty cool. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> so I went there for two months. Uh, it was a big deal because I was working um, in a nearby city. I was almost finished my apprenticeship as a tool and die maker. I told my boss that I wanted two months off to go to Columbia for the summer. They said, we can't do that. And uh, if we give you a leave of absence, more people will be asking for the same thing. And um, so I thought about it for a few days and I said, okay, then uh, I'm going to quit. And... Um, so I went back to him and told him that I'm going we're going to give you the leave of absence. So that was a, a reassuring uh, kind of experience. And I thought, if I do as badly in Colombia with Spanish as I had in high school with French and Latin, then I'm not going to have to worry about this. I'm never going to be a missionary <laughs> if I do that badly in Spanish. But, you know, I that summer was a huge turning point for me. I came back and I couldn't get it out of my mind. Hmm. Uh, I just met people there who had never, ever held a Bible in their hands before. Lots of them. And they would say, is this the real Bible, you know? And, of course, we didn't have much Spanish, only about three pages of phrases. <clears throat> but still, to see the reverence with the way people took the Bible in their hands and had never seen one before, never had one before. And I remember at home, we had one, all of us, ten kids had Bibles, and yeah. sometimes we hit each other over the head with them and things <laughs> like that. So uh, I came home, and I couldn't forget it. I couldn't get it out of my mind, and I thought maybe it was the job that was the problem. I thought maybe I need to change jobs. Um, I met my wife about right at that same time. I had known her previously from a youth camp, uh, a Christian youth camp, 
but we had never dated at that time. But the first week I was home from Columbia, I met her at a conference. And so I immediately uh, took advantage and uh, and uh, took her and her friend for a little tour of our countryside and uh, arranged to see her the next week and the week after that. And so that was September. We got engaged in February, married in July, and the following sh- September we were in Chicago hmm. to prepare to go to Ecuador for two years. Wow. So happened pretty quickly. What was that like uh, when you first touched down off the plane? The first couple of days, what, what, walk us through that. Well, really, it was the previous summer when I went to Medellin that I remember more clearly. Because when we landed in Medellin, in Colombia, uh, they took us for a tour of the major market of the city, which, and remember, this is 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty primitive. The market smelled bad. There was vegetables and stuff trampled underfoot that had rotted. And and uh, there was, a, you know, a head of a cow on the, on the table and legs and so on. I was used to seeing those kinds of things from my farming background, but not like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there was a whole big liver on the table. And, and uh, so I just remember uh, the shock of poverty, hmm. which I saw first in Medellin. But then when we landed in Ecuador, there was lots of it there. So we um, actually what happened, our Spanish teacher came with us for about six weeks, and then he was gone. And so we were on our own. And our plan was that we would be going from door to door to every house in the city of Guayaquil. And we would give at every door a gospel, one of the four gospels, a tract, and a postcard so that people could request a Bible correspondence course. So we went from door to door to door, which we had done the previous summer in Colombia, but we now did it in Guayaquil. It's about a million people. We went to every house, our team. And we had a summer team that came and helped us for two months. So it was a lot of work. And we were talking Spanish. Sometimes I would come home and my cheeks would just feel so tired <laughs> from speaking Spanish all day well, long. You must have picked it up pretty quick then. Well, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, I found that I, even the first summer, I found I was attracted to it. I took a mm-hmm. conversational Spanish course the next year. And, and then this teacher was with us in Chicago. And he worked with us intensely for maybe three months Mm -hmm. and then he came with us for six weeks and then we were on our own and um uh so we were talking to people every day all day long uh in spanish uh about the bible about the gospel questions they had tons of questions for me you know suddenly Mm -hmm. i'm like 23 years old and uh and i'm being asked questions every day is it true that jesus had brothers and why don't we worship uh the Virgin Mary, and uh, what about um, uh, what about the saints? Don't we believe in the saints? And so all of these questions were there every day. So suddenly we're scrambling for answers, and uh, and I was finding that every day during siesta and lunch, mm. I was boning up and reading and studying, <laughs> and uh, 
um, that was a really important time. Oh, One and I forgot to say, yeah. I forgot to say that the plane that was carrying everything that we had packed for two years crashed in Miami. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. I mean, completely. It was a cargo plane. The pilots were killed. And everything we had packed was gone. Wow. So Whoa. we suddenly were honeymooning in the tropics. And all we had was <laughs> was the suitcases we had carried. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's that's yeah. an experience in and of itself right there. Um, one yeah. of the things that you write here, you say... When church leaders are responsible for 40, 75, 150, 500 people, they are often conf confused about their primary purpose or purposes. When you have no people, it's very clear. And I love that. Uh, expound on that a little bit. So when we started in Ecuador, we had our team of six people and another couple who had two years experience prior to this. So there were eight of us. And we had one Ecuadorian man. That was our, that's how we started. And uh, we knew that we had come for two years. We were going to start a church with people that we were meeting, and then we were going home. We were turning it over to them. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a pretty audacious goal. Yeah. But that was it. I mean, there was no question about what we were trying to do. And I've worked with all kinds of churches and pastors since then. And I realized that many pastors, um, some of them say, well, you know, my goal is, my gift is really teaching. So I I teach them and, and so they will be fruitful and do the ministry. But others are strong on prayer or on worship. You know, you can tell yourself that we've got, a good youth group and maybe 15 years ago I was in Toronto and I was visiting a church that had declined mm -hmm. there were like only 20 people left in the middle of a big city mm -hmm. 20 people left elderly people and I was trying to get I was trying to persuade them that they should allow us to to have a, an immigrant church meet in their facility because they were not using it very much and they hummed and hawed and they weren't sure and the women didn't really want to share the kitchen. And and then they said, you know, we still have a girls club on Tuesday night. They have a girls club on Tuesday night. And the women don't want to share the kitchen. I felt so angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially so coming from your context. Yeah, I, I could only imagine, yeah. It, it just struck me, and I've seen this over and over again, that yeah. that many times churches are not very clear on what they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So to give them 40 people or 75 people or 150 people, and they have to do worship, they have to have prayer, they have to have missions, they have to, oh, uh, well, they need to do something for their young people and mm -hmm. so on, and they're busy. They're so busy, they don't have time to do anything like what we were doing in Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Zero. Zero time. They're so busy looking after the people they've already got that all of the rest of the people in their whole city that are not paying any attention to the gospel at all are not even thought about. Hmm. Yeah, that's... 
that's very convicting what you, what you share right there. I mean, that I, I, I think, yeah, that's that's very convicting. Um, it, and it struck it struck me that, that having no people meant there was no excuse. There was nothing. We couldn't say, well, you know, I'm busy, don't you know? Because um, <laughs> we had nothing else to do. Well, because there's so many things to hide behind. And I wonder, I'm just curious your take. So you work with, I don't know, is it, is it how many churches would, would you regularly work with right now? So Vision Ministries works with about 200 churches in Canada. And how many how many in Toronto and, and within, say, like, 100 miles or so of Waterloo, how, how many would that be? Oh, probably 100 miles of Waterloo. Probably, yeah, would, it, um, would be half of there them could there. could be, maybe. Yeah. It could be at least 75 or 80. So you're you're working, what my point is, you're working with a lot of churches, hands-on, that, that are going through this COVID-19 season. Um, and we you mentioned this a little bit off-air when we were chatting, that some during this time are prospering, prospering, thriving. Others are struggling. So, what are some of the differences between churches and that, that are prospering during this season versus ones that are maybe finding it hard? Well, it's made it's changed everything right away. So, immediately when we're doing church online, people don't know who's listening. You know, so it's forced churches right away to realize that this might not be just their own members listening in. Mm. This could be, and they know that there are certain others listening in. So it's made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and But churches where the pastors are highly engaged with their people and um, and are highly relational, they seem to be finding a way to do this no matter what. Mm. For those that don't have that, this is quite tough um, because the people aren't there. You can't see them. Um, I talked to a man in Ottawa, the capital city of Canada, and he's he's a, an Eritrean, a little country off the edge of mm. Ethiopia. And uh, he said to me that, they have four services a week, each three hours long. And they just they only have about sixty or sixty-five people. And I said to him, Sultan, what are you doing for three hours? <laughs> he said, Our people love to pray. Hmm. And we have worship. Some of our young people lead worship. And then some of us will some of them will pray. And they're saying, We all get a chance to participate now. So some of them will pray for 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Wow. And uh, so I was just so struck with what he was saying. And um, another a Chinese brother in Toronto was telling me that uh, some of the youth in their church, university students, had decided that they wanted to do an outreach for university students back in China. Mm-hmm. So they had set up a Facebook group, and they invited him, the pastor, to speak to these people. He said, last Monday night, I spoke to 65 university students in China Hmm. on Facebook Hmm. that were all set up with uh, six young people in his own church. Wow. So there have been some really interesting stories like that. Yeah. Uh, 
And what I've found is that uh, reaching people who are not following Christ presently, it's happening in two ways. It's either highly personal or it's social media. But social media that is designed for people outside of the church, not church services. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a massive difference. I love one of the points you made. You said, you know, it's all of a sudden forced people to realize, okay, people outside my church might be listening, right? <laughs> Which is, yeah. you know, and I think it's probably helped churches in a lot of ways gear their services more to realize, okay, it's not just um, our everyday attenders attending all the time. One of the th- points, I'm just curious, how many how many countries have you worked in, um, say, for extended periods of time? Because you've <laughs> traveled all, all over. Um, but say for more than six months or so, how, how many, you mentioned Colombia, how, how many others? Well, we've spent extended time in Ecuador and Colombia and uh, quite a bit of time in Kenya mm-hmm. uh, for shorter periods of time. But we've been going, I've been going every year since 2012. Uh, for two weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, a network of churches there, and I do coaching and mentoring of the man who um, who leads that ministry. And I have worked with that board quite a lot. And so I would say those are three countries where, where I've spent quite a bit of time. And, uh, and then we've visited uh, ministry mm-hmm. opportunities in quite a few others and traveled a bunch besides so i'm curious when you visit i mean i know there's so many different cultures so it's it's hard to really ask this question but um is it easier or harder doing ministry in canada as opposed to say like uh, kenya colombia ecuador what, what would you say well so in canada or in the western countries in general there is the sense that, you know, we've been there and done that. Uh, a lot of people feel like, you know, Jesus, yes, okay, we already know about that. Yeah. When I was in Ecuador and in Colombia, what we were talking about was new to people. So we were talking with people every day in Ecuador and in Colombia. Uh, we live two years years in Colombia as well in a place called Bucaramanga okay. and um, and so in both places people were not familiar with the Bible and uh, and so to open the Bible to people and say this teaches about it about uh, not only about life here but also about eternal life that we can actually have assurance of eternal life while we're still here did you know that well no and uh so it was easy in many ways to talk every day with people. I did the same thing here in Waterloo when I came home because after being away for the better part of five years, there was a little church in Waterloo that said, would you come and help us do here what you were doing over there? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. And uh, this was a really different story. Uh, it was difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, one is because I was doing it mostly by myself here. When we were in Ecuador and Colombia, we worked with teams. Mm-hmm. We planned together, prayed together, did it together, <clears throat> and evaluated together here. When I woke up in the morning and it's nine o'clock, well, people should be 
up by now. I'm going to go and mm-hmm. start knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a lonely thing to do. And, um, and I found that, number one, many people are not home. There's nobody home. Mm-hmm. Uh, both husband and wife are working. They're outside of the house. So often there's nobody there. Uh, and people would feel like this is this is too personal to talk right. about this kind of thing with right. a stranger. Right. So I found that that I would uh, for every seventeen people whose doors I had knocked on, I had one. Wherever I actually found a person at home, for every one out of seventeen, I would have a significant conversation of some kind. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Whereas. Whereas if that had been in Guayaquil or in Bucaramanga, it would have been just very different. Interesting. In, and in, in Africa, the same. I mean, there's, mm. it's so open. People are so willing. And immigrants who come to Canada, Chinese people, Iranian people, African people, are so much more receptive and open mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to talking about spiritual issues than longtime Canadians. Uh, because longtime Canadians feel like, you know, this is mm, this is too personal. We don't really want to talk about this with you. And uh, so it was slow going, but when you don't know anybody and you've got nobody coming, you have to do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that you know, keep coming back to that point, I think is so important because I think it's easy as churches where we grow and we see success, especially in the U.S., I would say. It's easy to get a number of people and then feel you're doing okay, but then to not really take inventory and say, okay, how many of these people coming to our church um, actually are not transplants from another church? And, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, are we touching that? That have maybe it's not that they've never heard of the, of the Christian faith or never held a Bible in their hands because they probably had some connection growing up. There's a good chance of that. Um, but you know what? What? What does it actually look like in, in our church? And I think really wrestling with that is so important. Um, I got to ask you this. So you alluded to this earlier, um, and one of the things. So if p- people were to ask me about you, I think one there's one interaction we had. So you came to our. Uh, church in Toronto a couple times, and we interacted um, uh, quite a bit over the few years that I was there. And one of the interactions, though, that we had, I think, really summarized how I view you. Um, it was after the death of your son, and I'd like you to share about that in, in a moment. And we come, my wife and I come to uh, attend the, the viewing, which was uh, a couple days before the funeral. And, um, you know, I wasn't really sh- sure what to expect. But I'll never forget, because we walked up to you, and, you know, immediately your response was, because I think we were fairly new to, to Toronto at that time, you said something to this effect, Ezra, I want to introduce you to someone else here, because they're going to help you so much with your church, and you connected me to someone else. We we had coffee together, and that said to me so much about who you are, that in that moment of, like, where the focus should be about you, <laughs> you're grieving your immediate thought was to think about other people. And um, so for those that are unfamiliar, um, share about that, the, the the death of your son and the, kind of the fresh doubts that you've shared that you experienced through that journey 
And um, did you, I don't know, I'm talking a lot here, but did you ever go through like a season through that where you were saying, okay, God, I've given 50 plus years of my life to missions work and, and this is what, what I get? You know, I, I'm just, these are the questions I have. It was very hard. Um, so, you know, it's a, actually a long story. Our son died when he was 40. Um, he'd had Crohn's disease for about 23 years. And I had no idea what Crohn's disease was until he got it. It's a, a very painful chronic bowel disease and uh, there were times when when he got it he was about 17 and we didn't know what was going on he would be at times just moaning and crying in the bathroom and um, eventually we found this was Crohn's and many people with Crohn's disease also have uh, it crosses over to creates emotional and mental health issues as well, which it did with him. He became just reckless with medication. Mm. And um, so he was the middle of our three sons. And um, it was 20, 23 years of great difficulty. And um, many times I asked people to pray for him. Uh, I was quite open about it. Uh, he was not following Christ. I mean, he was in an erratic, chaotic kind of way he was. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, he got married. The marriage lasted all of about four months. Uh, he had a child. Uh, this little child was growing up in the middle of chaos. This little boy's mother took her own life when he was five. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> and, um, and we became, we're very attached. That little boy is now 20 years old. And, um, but he was 15 when Kent died. And um, and he's a very vocal person, this grandson of ours. And um, so Kent went to a rehab place in Toronto, uh, which worked both with mental health and with addictions. I went to see him several times. He seemed to be doing quite well. The, best I'd seen him ever. <clears throat> and I went to pick him up on a Friday, a Friday afternoon in Toronto. I brought him home. My wife and I had dinner with him at our house. He made amends with my wife about some things over dinner. He was quite quiet. And I took him back to his apartment. <clears throat> and we went out that evening. And he called me at about nine o'clock. He seemed very sleepy. <clears throat> and the next morning, he was to be coming to our house to see his son, which was a big deal. And he didn't call. 
and um, we went by his place and rang the doorbell and no answer and seemed very odd. We had lunch together and um, and I called a friend of his. I said, have you seen Kent? And he said, no. He said, he's going to go over and check. So he went over and climbed up the outside of his apartment hmm. in from the outside in and found him dead. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so I would say that it was, uh, I can't say that I'm over this, really. Mm-hmm. It's been five years. And... Um, Lots of questions for God. Lots of questions about prayer. Is it worth it to pray? Uh, What do these promises about prayer really mean? And uh, lots of dialogue with my grandson, who had now was an orphan, had lost both parents at 15. So we've had endless conversations Mm. (laughs) with him. And I remember, of course, you having a friend of yours taking us for an airplane ride together, which was oh, yeah, 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 very nice. Yeah. And um, uh, there are silver linings. My grandson has, uh, when he was 17, launched a huge campaign for on mental health and addictions awareness. Yeah, it's all over. Up, it was all over Canada. He was on the news. He was on television. He spoke with the prime minister, mm-hmm. <laughs> with the, the federal minister of health. He was everywhere. And uh, so he's now just finished his first year of university studying political science. And he called today. He calls probably a couple of times a week. We talk. And um, so I feel like I have another mm-hmm. son, actually, uh, with him. Uh and uh, his his name is Noah, yeah, which was is also my father's name, <laughs> and um, so uh, it's been it's been really difficult, and I think maybe more difficult for me even than for my wife. We've talked about it endlessly, but um, I had never given up on him, mm. even in his most difficult years. So whenever he wanted to talk to somebody, whenever things were bad for him, I was the person he would call. Hmm. How do you how do you deal with that? You mentioned prayer, right? And so someone watching, listening, and they're saying, "I've prayed about something," and um, they really feel, whether it's in their spirit or other people have told them that this is going to happen, my whether it's praying for a friend to be cured of cancer or something like that, that God's going mm-hmm. to intervene. And here's the deal, like, I know it, you know it, that we've seen times when God has intervened, and it's just been like, wow, okay, yeah, it's like, yeah. And then you have times like this where I can only imagine, like, like how have you, what's your different perspective on prayer after all of this has happened? Well, I'm still not finished, Ezra. Um, I would say that it's forced me to look at the Bible again and to say, what does it really say about prayer? Mm. And uh, a couple of years after 
Kent died, I was asked to speak at my home church and they assigned me a passage. Uh, and it was John 14. And I looked at the passage and I thought, oh no. <laughs> this is one of my problem verses about prayer where Jesus said to his disciples that you will do greater things than what I have been doing and you can ask me anything and I will do it for you. Yeah. Well, what am I going to say about that? And uh, I'm not very good at faking it. And so I was struggling all week about that passage and I called the pastor and I said, uh, I have something I intend to say on Sunday, but if it's a problem for you, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said, um, I don't think this means what it appears to mean. That John 14 comes right after uh, Peter had denied the Lord and uh, and uh, after the, um, no, right after the washing of the feet where, where Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And, and uh, so he says, I'm going to be leaving you. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Like, really? Uh, I'm going to leave. You can't come with me. By the way, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he begins to talk about the fact that you're going to do things that I have been doing. And it's a very intense teaching on praying with faith. Jesus wanted his disciples to be flat out taking the gospel everywhere they went. Don't be afraid, not like Gord. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Um, I will be with you. You will do even greater things than I have done. And um, ask anything. I realized that Jesus was not saying, you know, you'll have this special chip in your pocket that whenever you have a need, you can pray and get what you want. Mm -hmm. That's not what it was about. This was all about doing the mission of Jesus. And he said, I'm going to be gone. They're going to hate you. But I will be with you. And he wanted them to understand. And it seems to me that it's a kind of an exaggerated, intense uh, teaching that he's given them, that he wants them to know that he's going to be with them pray, go all out for this. Mm -hmm. Is it a guarantee that everything you pray for is going to happen? Well, it wasn't for them. They prayed for things that didn't happen. So, you know, James was put to death and, and, um, and they were ready to put Peter to death. So people got, Stephen was put to death. Like, did nobody pray for him? Uh, I realized that actually there are a lot of cases in the Bible where Jesus spoke with a kind of 
exaggerated intensity. He said, um, if you're serious about this, if your eye bothers you, just gouge out your eye and throw it away. Well, I don't know anybody that's ever done that. Right. Uh, if your hand is giving you trouble, just cut it off. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there could be a lot of uh, blind people around if everybody took that literally. Yeah. And so when it comes to these teachings about prayer, I think that Jesus wanted us to be very serious, believing not necessarily a guarantee, but full of faith, flat out, no matter what. And we're going to leave the rest up to him. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how else to do it. That's so coming out of that. I mean, just I guess just one last final question on, on that. Um, cause we're basically out of time. Um, just talk about bitterness for a moment, uh, for the person that's gone through some really tough stuff and they're watching and listening and they're saying, man, like I, I've gone through this stuff where I feel like God hasn't come through for me. Um, how do you find your way back to maybe it's for different people, I guess in different ways, but for some, maybe it's a regained trust in God. How do you find your way back to sometimes for some people it's believing God is good again, right? Like, um, was there one key aspect of God that you struggled with? And if so, how did you find your way back from that? So I'm not sure that I've entirely found my way back yet, Ezra. Mm. Uh, I find that I can pray easily for other people. I find that I'm more hesitant to pray for something for myself. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Um, so when other people ask me to pray, it's no problem. <laughs> I'll pray. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, I realize that the Bible heroes had these kinds of problems also where God didn't seem to come through the way they were expecting. <clears throat> and so, and I know that we also have to have an adequate teaching on the meaning and value of suffering. Hmm. And um, so the day that I preached at my friend's church, from John 14, I said, I have a question for you all here today. How many of you have prayed for something like seriously and it didn't happen? I said, you don't have to stand up and wave your arms around, but you can just put it up kind of quietly. <laughs> <laughs> How many of you have had that happen? And Ezra, there were a lot of hands, a lot of hands. And so I, I think that in some ways we have misrepresented prayer. Uh, I found that new believers sometimes have the most outrageous answers to prayer. Just yeah. amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think that God gives them a special jolt when they first come to him. <laughs> and... Uh, but over the years, it's a funny way of putting it, but but I I found that to be true as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, I think that we have to realize that 
Praying is about kingdom purpose praying, primarily. Hmm. It's not primarily praying uh, that my life will go better or well or successful, even though I do pray those kinds of things. It's not primarily about that. It's primarily about the fact that Jesus was turning the family business over his disciples. And he said, you, this is going to be yours. You pray, you go, and I will be with you. And, uh, and you will do greater things even than I have done. Not greater in the nature of what he accomplished at the yeah. cross, but greater in going all around the world and everywhere. Mm-hmm. You're going to, what you do will be quantitatively greater. Mm. And I think it is. Where can people get your book when it comes out? When does it come out? Um, how can people stay in contact with you, what Vision Ministries does? Give us that information. So you can visit our website. It's uh, vision-ministries.org. Mm-hmm. And if you go to our homepage, you scroll down just half a page, and you'll see Gord's ebook. And you'll scroll down and hit Read More. And then you'll, there are numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six segments have been uh, published so far, and I just wrote the twelfth uh, one this morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, so we're uh, we're doing them a week at a time. We're printing, making them available a week at a time, and I haven't decided whether we will publish it in a paper book at some time in the future or not. But we're doing it a chapter at a time. Nice. Every Monday for now, awesome. and it's on my my Facebook page as well. Gord, thank you so much for taking some time. I appreciate it. Very good to see you again. It would be nice to see you back in Toronto. (laughs) Thank you. Man, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I just love Gord so much and just appreciate all that he shares. And uh, vision-ministries.org, that's where you can find his resources. And I hope you'll check it out, check out his book, and get a hold of him. Especially, maybe you know someone in Canada and they're looking to get connected to a church. I'm sure uh, Pastor Gord could point you in the right direction. But anyways, thanks so much for taking some time to listen. I'll talk to you all again soon on next week's edition of the Monday Christian Podcast. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. 